All right. So the winning question is from John Needham, which came in with 27 votes. And John said, hi, Chris, thank you for deep for. Well, my summary of this question, I'll read it in full. But my summary of this question is, does glucose handling in the brain decline with age? And if so, does this serve as a rationale to supplement with MCT oil to prevent cognitive decline? In more detail, John's question was, number one, does the brain find it more difficult to use glucose as a fuel as it ages? Number two, plates of glucose more difficult to detox in the brain than the metabolites of ketones? I believe I read this, but can't find the reference. Then he lists a study that stated, this is the longest duration MCT Alzheimer's disease study to date, 80% at stabilization or improvement in cognition and better response with nine months continual MCT oil. Three different tests of cognition were used. However, the study only involved 20 people. I think you will say it is hopelessly underpowered to draw any conclusions. And then John cites another study that was conducted on 46 APOE4 negative mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease patients and stated MCT had positive effects on cognitive ability in mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease patients with who did not have APOE4. These effects of MCT might be related to the metabolism of lysophosphatidylcholine, oleic acid, linoleic acid, palmitic acid, in addition to the ketogenic effect. I understand that APOE4 is the strongest risk factor gene for Alzheimer's disease, although inheriting APOE4 does not mean a person will definitely develop the disease. I'm in my early 60s. I agree with your comments last month on food-first approach and cook whole foods every day, but I can't help wondering, number three, might adding some MCT oil to my diet each day be a preventative strategy against cognitive decline without risking harm? Do you agree that MCT oil, a fractionated part of coconut oil, is a food or is it too highly processed, meaning too highly processed to qualify as a food? So his three questions are, number one, does the brain find it more difficult to use glucose as, as a fuel as it ages? Number two, are the metabolites of glucose more difficult to detox in the brain than the metabolites of ketones? I read this. Well, that's the question. Number three is, might adding some MCT oil to my diet each day be a preventative strategy against cognitive decline without risking harm? And do I agree that MCT oil would qualify as a food or is it too fractionated of a of a part of a food to qualify as a food in what I would call a food first approach. Um, so again, my my very broad overview summary of this is: Does glucose handling in the brain decline with age? Handling can mean using it as a fuel or just handling its its byproducts safely. Excuse me. And if so. Does, does that provide a rationale to supplement with MCT oil to prevent cognitive decline? So here is my answer. And the, the short answer is that energy metabolism in general declines across the body with aging, but energy metabolism seems to stay healthy enough in the brain in people who do not experience cognitive decline, while cognitive decline does appear to be driven by decreases in brain energy metabolism, I don't think it's best to describe these as a specific decrease in glucose handling. I do think that MCT oil can be modestly beneficial and a ketogenic diet can probably be somewhat more beneficial in people who have cognitive decline from any type as a result of the deficits in energy metabolism. 
but I don't think there's good evidence that any of these act as a preventative. And for prevention, I believe we should focus on aerobic fitness, nutrients required for healthy energy metabolism and antioxidant defense, and maintaining metabolic health with healthy body composition and a healthy physical activity routine that includes the proper spread of a portfolio of different types of exercise and the nutrition needed to sustain healthy energy metabolism and antioxidant defense. That's my short answer. So for a longer answer, I'll go into a little bit of background. So the brain constitutes 2% of the body's weight, but 20% of its energy demand. Around two-thirds of that energy demand is to fuel the activities of neurons. And generally, on a mixed diet, someone's burning 120 grams of glucose per day in the brain. And most of the brain's energy demands are met by glucose. Very little is met from fatty acids. Some is met from protein metabolism. And on a ketogenic diet, you can switch 75% of the glucose that you burn in the brain per day to ketones, but you can never get rid of the last 25%. And the general demands are filled in such a way that there is a partnership between neurons and cells that help neurons and wrap around them called astrocytes where the astrocytes will burn glucose to make lactate in anaerobic glycolysis. And the ATP demand of the astrocytes will be largely met by the ATP generated in anaerobic glycolysis. But then the lactate will be shuttled to the neuron and the primary fuel of the neuron is lactate, which is completely combusted for energy in the mitochondria the anaerobic glycolysis occurs in the cytosol, which is the main liquid of the cell that is outside the mitochondria and the other organelles. If each organelle, such as the mitochondria, the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi, et cetera, if you, can, if you imagine those as, a room, as rooms in the house of the cell, the cytosol would be the hallway that connects all the rooms. So anaerobic glycolysis is occurring in the cytosol of the astrocyte to generate ATP for the astrocyte. And then the lactate that is made from that process is shuttled to the neuron. The, neur- the lactate will go into the, the neuron's mitochondria and be completely combusted for energy. All complete combustion of any fuel for energy occurs in the mitochondria, the so-called powerhouse of the cell. And this will be the main fuel source of the neuron. So when we talk about 120 grams of glucose being burned in the brain per day, we really are talking not about glucose being the fuel for the neuron. We're talking about lactate being the fuel for the neuron. That 120 grams of glucose per day is largely generating a little bit of ATP for astrocytes and a lot of ATP for neurons after it's converted to two molecules of lactate by the astrocyte and shuttled into the neuron for complete combustion in its mitochondria. So the, the normal food of neurons is lactate. And lactate can be replaced by ketones on a ketogenic diet. But you can't get rid of the 
as I said before, you can on a ketogenic diet, you can get rid of 75% of the brain's energy demand. You can't get rid of the last 25% in part because glucose does other things besides just act as a fuel for ATP in anaerobic glycolysis in the astrocyte. It's also necessary for the production of NADPH for antioxidant defense in the pentose phosphate pathway. And it also is able to supply um, citric acid cycle intermediates in a process called anaplerosis, which means the filling up of the citric acid cycle. Which, if you're not familiar with biochemistry, I would just think of the citric acid cycle and the respiratory chain together as the metabolic fire in which all fuel is completely combusted for energy. So glucose is able to stoke the flames or act as kindling wood to light the fire of metabolism in a way that ketones can't and fats can't. And so on a ketogenic diet, when you get rid of 75% of your glucose demand, which is really lactate fueling the neuron, you're fueling the neuron with the ketones instead of the lactate, but you can't get rid of the 25% of glucose demand because you still need it for antioxidant defense and you still need it to stoke the flames of metabolism. Okay, so there's a lot of controversy over what contributes to cognitive decline, but if we look at consensus or there's never any true consensus, but the broad approximate consensus on causes that underlie cognitive decline in general across the board from cognitive decline in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, mild cognitive impairment, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, just generally across the board, consensus causes of cognitive decline in aging include three basic causes, reduced energy metabolism, excitotoxicity, where glutamate might ordinarily stimulate a neuron to turn it on, but if it never stops turning it on, then it just kills the neuron from the excess demand for excitation. So reduced energy metabolism, excitotoxicity, and oxidative damage. Now, if you consider these three, and this is me interjecting my comment on top of the consensus from reviews. If you consider these three, antioxidant defense and clearance of excitatory neurotransmitters are both energy dependent. In the case of antioxidant defense, you need ATP to synthesize glutathione. You need the pentose phosphate pathway, which is part of energy metabolism, to supply electrons from glucose up the chain to niacin in the form of NADPH, which carries them to riboflavin in the form of FAD as a prosthetic group of glutathione reductase, which is the enzymatic link between the antioxidant system and the system of energy metabolism, which then passes it on to glutathione, which passes it on to vitamin C, which passes it on to vitamin E. So all aspects of antioxidant defense are dependent on the system of energy metabolism. And the clearance, the, the complete regulation of all neurotransmitters, both their release and their clearance is all completely dependent on energy metabolism. And this is the reason is that everything the neuron does from getting excited to getting inhibited to transmitting a signal down an axon to releasing a synaptic, uh, to releasing a neurotransmitter from the synaptic vesicles to transmitting 
the impulse of that neurotransmitter to the next neuron and to clearing that neurotransmitter back into the previous neuron so that it does not keep exciting that downstream neuron and cause excitotoxicity. <clears throat> All of that is dependent on the flux of ions across membranes. And the only reason the ions are in any distribution in the first place so that they can flux to, to transmit their signals is that energy has been used to actively pump them across the membrane to keep them in one place. So, so both, you know, if you think about energy metabolism, excitotoxicity, and oxidative damage, these three are so interlinked because antioxidant defense and, and defense against excitotoxicity are both completely and totally dependent on energy metabolism. On the other hand, conversely, one of the reasons that mitochondria, that mitochondrial dysfunction is a universal characteristic of aging is that mitochondria accumulate the results of oxidative and nitrative damage. And this is associated with declines in glutathione with age and declines in antioxidant enzymes with age. And so the loss of energy metabolism is driven by the loss of antioxidant defense. But that means that there is a vicious cycle between the loss of antioxidant defense and the loss of energy metabolism. So you can't just say that energy metabolism is the foundation. In a sense, energy metabolism and antioxidant defense are so inextricably linked that antioxidant defense is what allows you to burn energy cleanly without damage to the mitochondria. And energy metabolism is what allows you to defend against oxidants that a loss of either one of these will cause a loss of the other. And healing from that loss will require adequate attention to both of these things in tandem. If anything, excitotoxicity should be seen as a result of the loss of energy metabolism, which in turn cannot be distinguished between fundamental loss of energy metabolism in the sense of losing nutrients involved or loss of energy metabolism because of loss of antioxidant defense and damage to mitochondria. All right. Now, Based on results in skeletal muscle, which doesn't necessarily reflect exactly what's in the brain, but this fact is cited in recent reviews of energy metabolism in the brain and aging because it's thought to offer some insight into what might be going on. And so those results show that in skeletal muscle, mitochondrial density declines by 8% per decade beginning at least as early as the 20s. And this is strongly correlated with aerobic fitness and glucose tolerance. Now, I would point out here that Inigo San Milan's research, and I haven't read his research, but I've listened to numerous interviews he's done, including two with Peter Atia, covers how zone two cardio training, which is steady state cardio at the tempo that will cause you to still be able to talk throughout the course of an hour continuously, but to feel slightly out of breath by doing it, 
and to feel that it's annoying such that if you were on the phone with someone, they would be able to tell that you're exercising just by listening to the way you're breathing while you're talking. Although it's more accurate to, to determine zone two with a lactate meter, where if you go up in your speed or really your output uh, and you plot your lactate, you'll see two inflections in lactate where the... I think we're going this way. So you see two inflections in lactate where the first inflection, uh, where where the slope of the lactate line goes uh, uh, changes to a faster increase is the beginning of zone two. And the next inflection point is the beginning of zone three. And so between those two inflection points is where your zone two cardio training is, if you want to be precise about it from a metabolic standpoint. So I would point out that his research is all about how you can prevent the decline in mitochondrial impairment by doing zone two cardio training because zone two cardio training is the most effective way to stimulate mitochondrial production and mitochondrial health with mitochondrial production being your best defense against the age-related decline in mitochondrial density. So I would point that out. But that said, I think there are some reasons to question whether a general mitochondrial decline is the primary driver of the dysfunction in energy metabolism that underlies why some people get cognitive impairment in as they um, as they age and some people don't. So first of all, right off the bat, this is a universal. I, I mean. It's a universal trend with a lot of variation around it, right? So it's just sort of like when bone mass declines from age 25 or 30, depending on your sex, not everyone at age 50 has the same bone mass. Some people have a better bone mass at age 50 than other people do at age 25. But it's the trend for everyone that it's declining at some rate after the peak. And for mitochondrial density, the the peak appears to be at like 18 to 20 years old, (laughs) And so, you know, one so one strong argument against that being the primary driver of why some people get cognitive decline as they age and some people don't is that, and this is me speaking, not not the research reviews. Um, this is my opinion, is that cognitive decline doesn't happen starting in your 20s. So if if um if actually if I just look at the review that that I got from that cited this. So this is this review is characteristics of neural network changes in normal aging and early dementia by Watanabe et al. from 2021. These are the people who cited this decline in mitochondrial density as a as a reason for the decline in energy metabolism in the brain in aging, even though it's in skeletal muscle. But you know, if you just open up their first paragraph, they say that motor function, memory, calculation, and intuition peak at around 20 years of age, followed by a gradual decline, while concentration and emotional cognition peak at around age 45, and comprehension, vocabulary, and judgment peak at around age 60. And if you if you go on to read this article, most of this stuff about normal aging is not about a decline in energy metabolism. It's about a shift in the way that the neural networks are maintained. And so you have these you have these peaks that are way after the the decline in mitochondrial density starts that are 
really driven by just rearrangements in neural networks where emotion cognitive uh, concentration and emotional cognition peak at age 45, comprehension, vocabulary, and judgment peak at around 60. These obviously aren't driven by processes that started at age 18. So I don't think the decline in mitochondrial density is driving them. Um, then also there's, um, there are people that despite these processes universally peaking at these ages, there are people who age to age 80 and just have, um, these are called super agers. So they, they say in a study that looked at some changes in the brain among cognitively normal young adults, cognitively normal older adults, and quote-unquote super-agers aged 80 years or older whose memory test scores were equivalent to or higher than those of people aged 50 to 65 years. The statistical differences in, micro, in these various uh, brain things that they're, that they're, that they're talking about um, are basically explaining that difference. So they're looking at some metrics that I'm not concerned with here where the superagers are looking like the the young people basically and these superagers are maintaining cognitive function like a young person into age 80 despite the fact that their mitochondrial density has to have declined since age 18 given how universal of a downtrend this is so I don't think a general defect, a general decline in energy metabolism, I don't think is what's going on. Um, that's that's explaining the difference between people with healthy cognitive function at age 80 and people with more normal declines in cognitive function at age, age 80 and people with cognitive disorders such as cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's, etc. Now, another thing is, if we go to the animal experiments that use models of cognitive decline in order to test what's going on in them and try to make those, try to make the cognitive decline look as similar to human cognitive decline as possible within a rat or a mouse, those experiments show that three things are very protective, ketones, lactate, and insulin signaling. And insulin signaling, of course, peripherally on your in your muscles, it's going to decrease glucose. But some of these animal experiments are suggesting that insulin has direct effects on the brain that are that are protective against cognitive decline. And I mean, notably, that argues against using a ketogenic diet because it lowers insulin, although it does imply that you want to maximize insulin sensitivity because in some of these cases, they're showing that you can make an animal diabetic so that its insulin is deficient or its insulin signaling it's in, or it becomes insulin resistant and insulin is able to correct uh, those responses. That's There are some similar results in humans with glutathione status, for example, where type 2 diabetes makes glutathione status decline. If you just pump glucose and insulin into their blood, the glutathione status normalizes. So the cognitive decline is another feature in diabetes where insulin 
signaling is a protective agent. And with insulin resistance, the problem is not that your insulin's high, it's that you're insulin resistant. So you're losing insulin signaling in the brain. Now, to me, I like to find simple explanations that can be parsimonious, that can be, and I, biology, biology is very complex, but if we're trying to reduce something into an action, you know, an action item, like the question, should I supplement with MCT oil? I'm trying to find the simplest explanations that have the greatest explanatory power. So when I see that ketones, lactate, and insulin signaling are all equally protective, this says to me that it's not about fat or carbohydrate because yes, ketones come from fat, but lactate and insulin are carbohydrate dominant dominant things. Lactate is a product of glucose in the brain that fuels neurons. Insulin is something secreted by the pancreas, not entirely, but largely in response to glucose and has its largest effects on glucose handling. So one of the things that insulin does that is not well recognized, but that I've covered in, in the energy metabolism class that MasterPass members have access to under courses in the menu is insulin stimulates glycolysis. And so one of the interesting features that happen in senescent or end stage about to die from aging astrocytes in the brain is that they shift from anaerobic glycolysis to oxidative phosphorylation, meaning instead of burning glucose to make ATP for themselves, turn it into lactate and give the lactate to neurons to burn as their primary fuel, they're basically hogging the glucose to themselves and completely combusting it for energy. And so it's not that glucose metabolism is disappearing in the brain. It's that now the neurons are suffering because they're not being given their protective lactate in the same quantity Whereas the astrocytes are trying to help themselves survive by burning the glucose completely for energy. And so the, the glucose handling is all going to the astrocyte. The neurons are being deprived of lactate and whole body glucose metabolism is, of course, going down because you burn through way more glucose if you make ATP quickly from it in the astrocyte and fuel the neurons with lactate. Because if you don't fuel the neurons with lactate, their lactate consumption goes down. And so now it's just the astrocyte talking the energy and they burn a minority of the energy. So that so that has mathematically glucose metabolism as a whole has to go down. But if you look at these studies that show that glucose transporters are decreasing, I don't think that's causing glucose metabolism to go down. I think the astrocytes and not giving lactate to the neurons is making the total amount of glucose burned go down, which means glucose is accumulating in the brain, which means that transport across the glucose transporters is going to go down or the glucose transporters are going, their expression is going to be decreased because the brain just doesn't have the demand for glucose because the neurons are not burning as much lactate because they're not being given lactate. So why would ketones, lactate, and insulin all solve that same problem? Well, I think it's simple. If you give ketones to the brain, it goes straight to the neuron and can be burned in the mitochondria without having to go through the astrocyte. If you give lactate to the brain, it can go straight to the neurons, be burned in the mitochondria without having to go to the astrocyte. 
if you give insulin to the brain, you're going to stimulate glycolysis. And so presumably you're also going to help these, I don't know this for a fact, but I would think that by stimulating glycolysis across the board, you would you would start to remediate this shift in energy metabolism in astrocytes and make them engage more in anaerobic glycolysis and reinstitute this provision of lactate to the neurons. But regardless, if you give insulin to the neuron, it's probably going to increase the neuron's own ability to burn glucose for, uh, for in glycolysis to generate its own lactate to burn the lactate for energy. So I believe that glucose... Uh, excuse me, ketones, lactate, and insulin are all protective and animal models because they're all helping get away from the decline in the astrocyte's provision of lactate to the neuron. So this really isn't about fat versus carbohydrate at all. It's really about, can you rescue the neuron from the astrocyte's failing to provide it with lactate? And you can do that with ketones. You can do it with lactate and you can do it with insulin. Okay, so it's probably not correct to identify either a general loss of mitochondria or a general decrease in glucose metabolism as the primary problem being solved by MCT oil. Rather, the primary problem may be that astrocytes are completely combusting glucose for their own energy as they become senescent rather than using it to provide neurons with lactate. MCT oil, its benefit is that it's ketogenic independently of insulin, and its value is that it can be included in a carbohydrate-rich diet and still generate ketones. So for example, 43 grams of MCT oil included with 300 grams of pasta and 100 grams of tomato sauce in healthy young adults raised beta-hydroxybutyrate to 0.3 millimoles per liter for at least two hours. The reason for this is that 8 and 10 carbon fatty acids do not require the carnitine shuttle to enter the mitochondria, and this shuttle is shut off by insulin. Lord, now, John asked about the difference between coconut oil versus MCT oil. So coconut oil, its, it's dominant fatty acid is lauric acid. Lauric acid has 12 carbons. It does require the carnitine shuttle, so it being burned for energy is shut off by insulin. 8 and 10 carbon MCTs make up less than 15% of coconut oil. That means you would need 286 grams of coconut oil to bring beta-hydroxybutyrate to 0.3. Now, this effect is pretty modest given that ketogenic diets can raise beta-hydroxybutyrate to between 1 and 5 millimoles per liter, depending on how extreme they are. And, you know, so, so you're looking at MCT oil bringing BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, the, pre the predominant ketone that's measured in the blood to less than a third of the bottom range of a modestly ketogenic diet and to basically 15 times less than the peak concentration reached in a strongly ketogenic diet, you would expect... Uh, you would expect coconut oil to be somewhere around seven times less effective than that. So if you wanted to achieve the rise to 0.3 millimoles per liter BHB on a pasta diet, you want to replicate that with coconut oil rather than requiring what I say was 40, 43 grams, you would require 286 grams of coconut oil. You're going to get massively fat on that diet and it's going to be really ineffective. So 
in terms of John's third question, you know, does this qualify as a food? I mean, the answer is you really cannot get this effect with coconut oil. Now, you could get it with coconut oil if you're on a ketogenic diet. The coconut oil might enhance that because it's got a little bit less than 15% 8 and 10 carbon MCTs. MCT oil is going to enhance it even further than coconut oil will. So you're just you're just straight up not going to get this effect with coconut oil. It is especially in a in a carbohydrate dominant diet. You know, is MCT oil a food? You know, it's kind of in a gray area. Like, but it's really not doing anything that butter isn't doing, where you're fractionating the milk fat to get the component that that comes along in butter, which is most of the fat in the milk. You know, that's a form of processing. So butter is a processed food. It's not an ultra processed food, but it's a processed food. Because butter is taking a form that the the original milk doesn't take. MCT oil, I don't believe anyone was... I don't think that you can make MCT oil by like skimming the top of, of, uh, um, of coconut oil. You know, but it's... I don't, I don't, I don't know that it's, um, you know, you can, you can, you can centrifuge the coconut oil. You should be able to separate the layers off the top of my head. I, I don't, I don't remember how MCT oil is industrially made, but you are just fractionating a substance that comes from the coconut oil. I don't think it's that much different from making butter. So, you know, so it's a, I would call it a processed food because it, it is a substance from the original food, but it's taking on, a form in terms of its, its you know, oh, it, like how fluid it is, right? So you can just pour it out of a bottle. It's taking on a different physical form because it's it's more liquid it, at a at a it stays liquid at a lower temperature and it be, and it is more fluid at any given temperature. And but you know. But especially metabolically, you can say it's it's clearly has properties that coconut oil largely doesn't have. Like coconut oil does have the ketogenic effect. It's just nowhere near as strong. So I would consider MCT oil a processed food. It's more processed than butter, but it's not, I wouldn't call it, a, but it's not an ultra processed food because it's not, it's not a, doesn't have synthetic ingredients added to it that are uh, caused it to take on a, a, a um, Properties that that don't exist in the food, right? It's just an isolation of properties that do exist within a food. Okay, so you know that said, in terms of those studies, John cited a couple of them. I'll put the references in the show notes. I'll also put the reference to a meta-analysis in the show notes. Uh, the general summary of these studies is that in people with established Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment, we have Amounts between 17 grams and 42 grams in studies that were between 30 days and not seven to nine months, uh, showing basically modest improvements in cognitive function. Uh, these seem to be pretty consistent across MCT oil versus ketogenic diets. There's not enough data to separate them. I suspect the ketogenic diet is more effective. They seem to be pretty consistent across the different types of cognitive in- impairment that have been tested. But there are no studies on the preventative effect. 
so, you know, to go back to what I said in my short answer at the beginning, I think most likely ketogenic therapies are beneficial across the board for any age-related decline in cognitive dysfunction as a result of their ability to bypass the need for astrocyte lactate generation to fuel neurons. Although ketogenic treatments have shown benefit with established cognitive impairment, they haven't been tested to prevent mild cognitive impairment in healthy people. So I believe preventative strategies should focus on nutrients required for antioxidant support and energy metabolism, maintaining aerobic fitness with frequent zone two cardio training, and maintaining metabolic health through good nutrition and a robust fasting feeding cycle. I note that I didn't really answer John's second question, which is, are the products of glucose metabolism and keto metabolism more or less toxic in the brain with age? I don't think that that question has much relevance and it can't really be answered as such because the most toxic byproducts of energy metabolism are the same across ketones and glucose. So for example, I did my doctoral dissertation in methylglyoxal, which is the principal uh, quantitatively important form, uh, former of advanced glycation end products. And it's a byproduct of glycolysis and it's a byproduct of ketone metabolism and it's a byproduct of the amino acid threonine metabolism. So it comes from protein, fat, and carbohydrate. You know, so that just it's not true that there are different. I'm not saying there are no difference in the toxic byproducts, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's where our minds should be focused when trying to think about how to maintain healthy energy metabolism in the brain. All right, thank you, John, for your question. We're now going to give some simpler answers for the runners up. Uh, then when we do the two questions for the runners up, then we're going to go to any uh, questions for people that have their hand raised. And then we're going to go to the 29 questions in the Q&A box. So the second question comes from, and this is the first runner up, from Kimberly, who says, a trusted doctor told me long ago to avoid whey protein due to negative effects on the kidneys. I never looked into it as I do not consume it, but I've seen more discussion in recent years. A quick search includes this paper, though I've not read it, there must be a conclusive answer in the literature since it's a highly recommended supplement. Generally speaking, of course, it's is it only unsafe at a certain level? So I'm going to go straight to that paper. And I, you know, my main preparation for this question was to read that paper. So let's go straight to it. I think this is the right one. Oh, wrong one. Maybe this one. Yeah, this is the one. All right. So we're looking at whey protein supplementation and its potentially adverse effects on health, a systematic review. This this paper is is kind of sloppy um, and it's got <laughs> it's not very convincing, but let's go through it. So in the abstract they say Whey protein is composed of soluble whey proteins and its benefits are well described in the literature. However, there are not many studies investigating the potential adverse effects of a diet with indiscriminate use of this supplement. The aim of this study was to perform a systematic review of papers that address this theme. A search was conducted in Medline, Lilacs, Talk, you know, various databases. In the end, 11 documents composed this review. The majority of the papers associated the damaging effect with the chronic and abusive use of whey protein, the kidneys and liver being the main organs affected. The other studies related whey protein to aggravation of aggression, presence of acne, and modification of the microbiota. 
Therefore, excessive consumption over a long period of, of protein supplementation may have some adverse effects on the body being aggravated when associated with a sedentary lifestyle. The thing that drives me nuts about this paper is that if you actually read the paper, utterly none of it is very convincing, but they they don't indicate that in the abstract. So they don't, the abstract should be a reflection of what's in the paper. They don't really give, they should have like a sentence at least that covers the limitations of these of these papers and they, and they don't. But let me just go through a couple of highlights. So you specifically asked about the effects of kidney function. So this is what they say. They say the studies of Aparicio et al. and Hattori, Decelius, and Heidelberg found in this review associated the consumption of a hyperproteic diet with the appearance of kidney problems using respectively animal and human models. Aparicio showed that consumption of a diet supplemented with short-term weight protein intake increased plasma urea, urinary volume, and urinary calcium excretion while decreasing pH and urinary citrate. Decreased urinary pH concomitantly with hypocitraturia and hypercalcemia are recognized as risk factors for nephrolithiasis. That's a complicated way of saying low pH and too much citrate and calcium can cause kidney stones. Though this result was not found in Aparicio's study. And then, yeah. Regarding renal function, the main concern is the possible overload of the kidneys due to an increase in the pressure and rate of glomerular filtration from a high-protein diet since urea, the main product of protein metabolism, is excreted by this organ. However, a systematic review by Martin 2005 shows that renal hyperfiltration can be an adaptive mechanism and therefore would not cause damage to the organism of healthy individuals. Another systematic review, in this case of experimental studies, points out that the use and supplementation of whey protein does not alter the kidney biomarkers, such as creatinine and urea, and does not change histological tissue on renal glomeruli and tubules as well. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, just look at what they're saying here. They're saying that one person did a study in rats. They discuss the rat study and they don't discuss the human study at all. Then they go on to say that the greatest harms found by the rat study have been shown to not be harmful in people who don't have kidney disease already and might be beneficial. And then they say that there is an an existing systematic review of experimental studies that shows that whey protein doesn't do any of this in humans. Right. So even the section on kidney disease, basically, we don't even know what the Hattori, Tesselius, and Heidelberg study is showing. Now, I did look up this human paper that they cite. And so let me let me show you that paper. So this is Hattori, Tesselius, and Heidelberg, 2017. Let me pull this up real quick. So the...
All right, so this paper... Actually, you know what? I, I can't bring it up as, as fast as I thought it was going to be. I'll just tell you what I found. So in this paper, they noted that some people had their urine pH go down and some people had their urinary calcium go up. But if you look at the table, there was no, no difference between whey protein and albumin, which was used as a control, right? So if you're looking at does whey protein versus any other type of protein do these things, it, they used albumin as a control for that. And there was no difference in the, in the urine calcium or the urine pH. So protein in general is, I will say outside of this paper, protein in general does have the capacity to increase your uh, urine calcium and it does has, have the ability to decrease urine pH. And that's because sulfur amino acids are metabolized to sul in part sulfuric acid, which can lower the urine pH. Lowering the urine pH is a risk factor for kidney stones because a low urine pH increases the formation of calcium oxalate stones, although a high urine pH above seven can increase the formation of calcium phosphate stones. So you do want your urine pH to largely be between 6.4 and 6.8. I think it's fine if it's like 5.5 when you wake up, but after you eat, it should be 6.4 to 6.8 for the rest of the day, but that's not an effect. First of all, whey protein versus albumin had no effect in that paper. And, you know, they, they said like in, in a, some people with whey protein, it went up, but in other people it went down if you look at their data and there was no difference, right? So that paper does not shed any light on any harms of whey protein. However, just generally speaking, you do want your protein balanced with your potassium because potassium is a general correlate of the alkalinizing organic acids such as citrate and malate in foods. And so if your protein and your potassium intake are balanced, you, you should not have your urine pH change. And on my, if you go to chrismasterjohnphd.com um, and you go to tools, there should be a database on balancing protein and potassium. So I believe it's the getting potassium on low carb diets. If you search that, is, is this the one? Maybe it's the one on, you know what? It might be the one on, on carnivore diets. Um, I don't know that why that's not in my menu. I got to fix that, but I'm going to search my website for potassium carnivore. That brings up getting potassium on carnivore diets. Yeah, okay. So if you do a search of chrismasterjohnphd.com for potassium carnivore, you'll get the, the database getting potassium on a carnivore diet. However, that only has carnivore foods. So I probably... Um, you, it really doesn't matter because that's a specific concern on a carnivore diet. Um, that database really isn't good on mixed diet because the potassium is largely going to come from like from fruits and vegetables. So anyway, um, let's see what I if I see what I recommended there though. Um, so I 
I recommend Invair, and I think this is a general rule across the board. You want 750 to 1500 milligrams of potassium for every 100 grams of protein. And so that's that's not a specific issue with whey protein, but it but it does cover the theoretical risk to the kidneys from a high protein diet in a healthy person. Now, the increase in urinary calcium, some people have thought that that was an effect from leaching calcium out of the bone, and some of it might be, but Jane Kerstetter at the University of Farm, uh, Connecticut at Farmington did a number of studies showing that A, high-protein diets are good for the bones, and B, a lot of that urinary calcium comes from increasing calcium absorption from food as an effective protein. All right, so let's go back to this uh, this paper. Effects of on liver protein. So they cite three animal studies showing that whey protein can increase liver enzymes. I didn't even look those up because I thought that they don't even sound like they're useful. So first of all, human studies haven't shown that. Animal studies are probably using unrealistic amounts of it. But more to the point, an increase in protein can increase these so-called liver enzymes just because those enzymes role in the liver is gluconeogenesis. On a high-protein diet, you're probably going to have more gluconeogenesis. And I myself showed that on high-fructose diets, liver enzymes trended up in rats when I fed them 60% fructose. But then you know, my, my advisor wanted me to say this was in a negative effect on the liver, but I was like, you know, I found evidence that anything that increases gluconeogenesis can increase these without a negative effect on the liver and fructose increases gluconeogenesis. So I don't think we can say that. So we then took the liver to um, the guy on my committee, Jose Manitao, who's a, a world-class expert in acetaminophen tox- toxicity. And he's, he worked on toxicology within the pharmacology department. And so he he looked at like every everything we could look at for signs of toxicity in the liver and there were just their livers were slightly bigger but there was no difference in any qualitative thing you could say about the appearance of the liver that could say that there was any harm to it um so slight increases in liver enzymes aren't evidence of liver toxicity on their own but this is only found in animal models um, and then they do cite one case report that a young, healthy male patient developed a deep hepatic cholestasis associated with the presence of jaundice without any type of biliary obstruction or hemolysis due to prolonged use of protein supplements being whey protein and creatine. And I looked at that paper and... They claim in their case report that this is a case of idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury from a combination of whey protein, creatine, and nitric oxide boosters that this guy was taking for recreational bodybuilding, who denied taking anabolic steroids, so who knows. And by definition, idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury, I don't know if these are drugs, but whatever, is not related to the dose and it's not related to the time on the drug. So they're basically saying this is an idiosyncratic reaction that is not a standard dose-dependent toxicity that is not necessarily replicable in other people. But they didn't they didn't give any clear evidence that that was the case. So they 
you know, they took him off the things and they, and they treated him for the jaundice and he improved and he went back to bodybuilding, but he didn't go back on the supplements and it didn't come back. But didn't that have any clear evidence of cause and effect? The last thing I'd point out is that um, Jose Manitao has done some controlled studies of very, very high... Sorry, not Jose Manitao. Um, <laughs> Jose Manitao was, was, on, was the, guy, the guy on my committee. Um, forgot his last name. The, the, he was the head of, maybe still is, the head of ISSN, International Society for Sports Nutrition, and uh, Jose Antonio. Sorry. So Jose Antonio has done some very high protein feeding studies in healthy people. Let me see if I can pull those up. And basically shown that they don't do anything uh, harmful. So for example, he's got a high protein diet has no harmful effects. A one-year crossover study in resistance trained males from 2016 in the Journal of Nutritional Nutrient Metabolism. And they fed, it was a randomized crossover study. They consumed their habitual or normal diet for two months and four months and alternated that with a higher protein diet, three grams per kilogram body weight, which is, um, if you divide that by 2.2, that's 1.36 grams per pound of body weight. So for someone who weighs 150 pounds, that's 204 grams of protein. Um, and they measured blood lipids and all, all indices of liver and kidney function and found that nothing was impacted. You know, so whether... Whether someone might have some decrease in their liver or kidney function on a high-protein diet is going to be very idiosyncratic. You do have to eat, you know, restrict protein if you have established kidney disease, but there's no evidence that protein causes kidney dysfunction or liver dysfunction. Um, and there's no reason to think that whey protein has any specific effect that is negative versus protein in general. Um, so my short answer to this question is perhaps in people who have harm to their kidneys, they might need to restrict protein in accordance with the medical treatment, but there's no evidence that high protein diets cause kidney dysfunction. I do believe there's reasons to balance protein with potassium rich foods in the diet, specifically 750 to 1500 milligrams of potassium from food per 100 grams of protein. But outside of that, I don't have any specific concerns about whey, about protein in general or whey protein specifically. Although I will say that I have covered in a previous podcast on ornithine transcarbamylase dysfunction that there are some some small percentage of, of, of people who have a polymorphism in the OTC gene that probably are, are going to do better on a more moderate protein diet. Um, but that's all I have to say on that question. All right, thank you, Kimberly, for your question. The last question comes from 
Last, the second runner-up in the last of the prepared questions comes from Heidi N. Why would someone not tolerate methyl donors despite needing them, as indicated by blood tests or having genetic SNPs and symptoms? Methyl donors such as methylfolate, methyl B12, choline cause tightness in my neck and other muscles, irritability, anxiousness, feeling weird, and sometimes headachey feelings. It have low serum folate, high MCV, MCH, the PEMT SNP, and sometimes lower B12. So I want to take methyl donors to have more energy, better skin, and better cellular integrity. However, I even have problems with non-methylated B12 and B9, which is folate. I can't take 30 milligrams of folinic acid. Within one week, I get the same symptoms as above. My sleep gets disturbed, early waking and mild pounding heart. If I take a small piece of adeno B12 or hydroxy B12 tablets from seeking health, I would summarize this question as why do some people have negative effects from methylation supplements when they need methylation support? So my short answer to this is that some people take too high of a dose of these supplements and 30 milligrams of folinic acid is clearly in that category. And that itself could be the problem. But more generally speaking, I believe that people who need methylation support and yet get negative effects from methylation support, usually what's going on is they're having swings in their methylation up and down because of deficiencies of the nutrients needed to buffer excess methyl groups and to harvest the buffered methyl groups, which is really all part of the process of buffering methyl groups. And I've I've referred to that as the glycine buffer system. But in this answer, I'm going to go into it in a little bit more detail. Because the glycine buffer system is not just dependent on glycine, it's also dependent on nutrients needed to use the glycine buffer system. So if you have a if you have an incoming spike in methyl supply, such as from a high dose of a methylated supplement, or even just from a high methionine intake associated with a, a high protein meal. Even if you generally need methyl support, you are going to have a spike higher than what you need over the course of the next hour or two in that moment. And so what you need to do is you need to buffer that extra supply of methyl groups with glycine. And glycine gets methylated once to form sarcosine and gets methylated a second time to form dimethylglycine. And then these go to the mitochondria where the methyl groups can be taken off. So you take a methyl group off of dimethylglycine and you generate sarcosine. You take a methyl group off of sarcosine and you generate glycine. Now you take those methyl groups within the mitochondria and maybe you use them directly, but more often than not, what you're doing is you are forming formulated folate, which then in the cytosol, which is the main compartment of the cell where most methylation is taking place, you're going to take the formate and you're going to successively metabolize it down with MTHFD1 several times and then finally MTHFR to make to go from 10 formal folate to 510 methenyl tetrahydrofolate to 510 methylene tetrahydrofolate finally to 5 methylfolate so that you then can 
use methylfolate and B12 together to recycle homocysteine and methionine to repeat the methylation process. So there's a lot of things going on here in the buffering of an excess methyl group to, to ultimately be reused again in the form of methylfolate. So if we start with the original buffering by glycine, glycine and methyltransferase, its activity is induced by glucagon, which means it increases in the fasting state and it declines in the, in the feeding state. However, the, it's also stimulated by androgens. And so if you're going through a full fasting feeding cycle where you have a full decline in insulin and rising glucagon, uh, you're going to have more of this enzyme available and it's stimulated by androgens. So if you have low testosterone or androgens in general, you might have low production of this enzyme. But the but the general impact of this but the general impact of this is that this and en- this enzyme will be switched off by methylfolate when methyl groups are in low supply and it will be turned on by the lack of methylfolate when methyl groups are in high supply. The reason for this is, say you eat... Now, we're not talking about supplements yet. So we're just talking about normal fasting feeding cycle. You have to go through the fasting state to get this enzyme produced, but it's basically produced for use in the fed state. And in the fed state, what happens is you have a lot of methionine. Say you ate a steak. You have a lot of methionine from the steak the SAMe or acid methionine that you produce from that will tell the body that you don't need MTHFR because if you have a lot of methyl groups incoming, you don't need to recycle homocysteine to methionine. You have methionine from the steak you ate. So you shut off MTHFR during the fed state because of the high amount of methyl groups. You also... Now, because you shut off MTHFR, your methylfolate levels drop. The drop in methylfolate levels turns on glycine and methyltransferase. And um, oh, I, I also, I forgot to mention, in addition to glucagon and androgens, vitamin A also stimulates this, right? So you need to go through the fasting cycle. You need to have adequate androgens and you need adequate vitamin A to make this enzyme. But in the fed state, when you have lots of incoming methyl groups from a from a protein-rich meal, your methylfolate levels drop because they're supposed to, and that's what switches on this enzyme to buffer the methyl groups. If you don't, so if you're missing glucagon in the fasting state, if you're missing adequate androgens, that's going to differ by male-female status, obviously, but in either you can have deficient androgens. And if you're missing vitamin A, you are not going to have the... Glycine buffer system buffer your methyl groups. So you'll have a period of excess methyl groups during the fed state. Now, let's say that you do adequately buffer those methyl groups in the fasting state. In order to reconstitute the, the methylfolate levels, you need to harvest the methyl groups from the methylated glycine. So the first enzyme that you're going to do that with is dimethylglycine dehydrogenase. 
And dimethylglycine dehydrogenase is dependent on riboflavin as FAD and folate as THF. That's tetrahydrofolate. That means that you need to have unmethylated folate, right? And if you're not supplementing, you should have unmethylated folate at the point where you need to harvest these methyl groups because the whole reason you you turned on the, the glycine and methyltransferase in the, in the first place was because you shut off MTHFR, right? So you should have plenty of unmethylated folate. Riboflavin, unmethylated folate, and iron in the non-heme form, so in the ionic um, iron form, are the cofactors that you need for dimethylglycine dehydrogenase. And then that will get converted to sarcosine after you harvest one methyl group, and then you'll need to use sarcosine dehydrogenase to harvest the final methyl group, reconstituting the original glycine. That again requires riboflavin and tetrahydrofolate, that's unmethylated folate, and again requires iron, right? So iron, riboflavin, and unmethylated folate are required to harvest the methyl groups from the methylated glycine, but the fasting state physiology androgens and vitamin A are needed to buffer uh, the methyl groups with glycine in the first place. So if we put that together, what do you need for a working glycine buffer system? Well, you, <coughs> you need the glycine. You need to cycle fully through the fasting, the fed state and the fasted state. You need androgens, vitamin A, riboflavin, unmethylated folate, and iron. Those are the things that, that you need. So I believe that most people who have swings in methylation back and forth or who are harmed by methylation supplements when they need them are probably deficient in one of those six things. Now, to go back to Heidi's question, for some of the specifics, she has low serum folate. That, that is an indicator of low methyl folate. She has high MCV. That is um, an indicator of generally low non-methylated folate, but more specifically, that's, that's deficient DNA duplication. And the DNA duplication is dependent on 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate. That's not the same as folinic acid, but folinic acid is probably the closest you can get to trying to replete that. You know, But if her methylfolate is low and her MCV is high, that might just indicate deficient folate across the board. I would want to look at the RBC folate because if the RBC folate is also low, then that would confirm that the problem isn't a deficiency in a specific form of folate. It's just a deficient folate across the board, in which case it's probably not a matter of manipulating methylfolate versus folinic acid. It's probably just a matter of repleting the folate level. Sometimes lower B12, I would want to look at methylmalonic acid in the blood and the urine. I would want to look at the specific level of B12. B12 levels, um, you know, serum folate should generally be around 18 to 22, whereas the, the, the cutoff that the labs use is three, which is insane. Uh, B12 should probably be above 400. The labs use, usually use a lower cutoff than that. Um, 
but I don't think anyone should expect to be able to take 30 milligrams of folinic acid. That, that level's insane. Uh, you know, one milligram is the, is the upper limit set by the Institute of Medicine for folate supplementation. I'm not saying no one ever needs more than that, but in general, you shouldn't expect to need radically higher than one milligram. And it, it just shouldn't surprise you if taking 30 milligrams is causing a, a problem. So, um, so that's all I have to say of that. So, so just to summarize, you know, if your if your serum folate RBC folate and is low and and high, MCV is high, you know, you you just deficient folate. It's not about the form. If your B12 is low, you have to replete it. Um, but generally speaking. If you can't handle methylation supplements, I think you have a problem with the glycine buffer system. And what you want to look at is glycine itself, fasting, feeding, cycling, androgens, vitamin A, riboflavin, folate level in general because of the need for unmethylated folate and iron levels. And look at all those comprehensively fix the ones that are off. If you fix your limiting factor, I believe that will help improve uh, the, the tolerance of methylated supplements. The one last thing I'd add is that I believe that some people experience adverse effects simply because they're calibrated to a very low level of methylfolate and they need to work their way slowly up. And what I recommend with that is a, a specific uh, liquid methylfolate from... Uh, I'll pull it up on Amazon here. So liquid methylfolate comes from Holistic Health Methylfolate 5-MTHF. It comes as a, a one drop is um, 78 micrograms. And if you can't tolerate one drop, you can mix it in 10 drops of an oil and mix it homogeneously so that one drop is 7.8 micrograms calibrate yourself to the low dose each week, increase the daily dose until you can tolerate it better. That would be my plan B if modifying those six things doesn't work out. All right. That is the end of our um, prepared responses. We are going to go to the Q&A. We have Melissa Milan has her hand raised. I'm getting tired of sitting. So I'm going to stand up while we go to the, the next questions. Patient with me for one second. I got to adjust the lighting as well. All right, Melissa Milan, I am promoting you to panelist.
Hey, Chris. Hey, Melissa. How are you doing? Hey, thanks so much for being so generous with your expertise. Um, I wanted to see what you thought about this new cultured oil offered by Zero Acre Farms. I haven't been able to find much information on their process or raw materials. Um, well, I will have to look at it now. So um, I'm going to Zero Acres Farm, zeroacre.com. And uh, let's see if they, let's see, cooking oil made by fermentation. So they say that an oil culture like a sourdough, wine, or yogurt culture is a community of, the heck? Is a community of food producing microorganisms, but instead of making leavening and bread, the alcohol and wine or the lactic acid that gives you gives yogurt its tang. An oil culture makes healthy, delicious fats. Making an oil from fermented cultures instead of conventional oil crops results in smaller environmental footprint, ten times smaller than vegetable oil. I don't know if they have. Um... Wow, this website is extremely difficult to read. Um, all right. I think I found the science. So got to be somewhere. So it says they feed natural sugars to a culture and let the magic happen. Here's how it works. It starts with an oil culture, a community of microorganisms cultivated specifically for making healthy fats. Next, the culture is fed sugar from non-GMO perennial sugar cane. Over the course of a few days, microorganisms in the culture convert this sugar into oils or fats. Then they press it and separate it. I don't know. I mean, have you found an analysis of the fatty acids in it or anything? This website yes. seems low on the science. Um, I heard one of the um, inventors of this process on a podcast talk about the fatty acid profiles, which sounded great. Um, but again, it's so novel and I'm not familiar with a culture that produces a cooking oil. So I went to their white papers and they have seed oils as a driver of heart disease and how vegetable oil makes us fat, but they don't have, you know, a white paper on what's in their oil. So you heard them talk about it on a podcast, but do you know if they've published it anywhere? Because I don't see any. I, I don't. I don't know. Website. I just heard it vocally. Um, yeah, I mean, I, my instinct is I don't. I don't trust this right now because with something so novel, I mean, I, they're trying to, they're trying to sort of um, kind of lump it in with traditional fermentation, but you know, the obvious elephant in the room is that this isn't traditional fermentation, right? So it's, it's not that I would expect there to be anything harmful about the principle of, of the fermentation. It's just that, um, it's a new food 
that didn't exist before. Uh, there's nothing particularly unnatural about it. It's just not a traditional food. So therefore, I would want to understand more fully what's in it. You know, I, I'm not intrinsically skeptical of the process um, in the sense that, you know, microbial metabolism is certainly something that is natural and that we've never had complete control of. I mean, we have trillions of bacteria in us that are doing all kinds of things that we don't have control over. You know, so I'm I'm fairly comfortable with the idea of of um of fermenting something and you know having obtaining fats from microbes. I mean, even when we drink milk, we obtain my, uh, fats that are made by the microbes in the rumen, and you know, so so I'm it's it's not like I'm intrinsically skeptical of the process itself. I just don't know what the result is. And I don't like the fact that they don't document the testing they've done on their website. I mean, I, I'm used to a website being mostly marketing and it being hard to find the science, but even in their white papers, they don't have just a paper on like what's in this stuff. So I'm not going to give a, a definitive uh, answer, but um, I wouldn't use it now until I understood it better. And uh, I, I can't understand it better until I see more science about it. And I, I, I don't feel like they're all that forthcoming about their science. So that's all I can say about it right now. Thanks. Appreciate it. Cool. All right. Thank you for your question. Danny M is next. Danny M has his hand raised. Danny, I'm promoting you to panelist. Hey, Chris. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing great. Getting some zone two cardio in on the spin bike while I listen. What's up? Zone two. I'm doing zone two cardio oh, yeah, spin yeah, bike while I listen. Um, my question is regarding DHA supplementation. I've seen some indications that supplementing with DHA can raise one's ApoB or LDLP level. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, especially with regard to DHA in the phospholipid form, which some studies show can be neuroprotective for those with the ApoE4 variant. So would you see that DHA supplementation raises ApoB? Yeah, I've seen some comments on that on the interwebs, and there's link to a couple studies. I haven't dug into them deeply, so I was curious if you had any knowledge or experience on that topic. No, I mean, I I think this, um, you know, I could I could answer you better if if you had uh, studies in hand, where I could just take a quick look at the study. Um, let me see if I can pull something up quickly on PubMed. All right. So the top thing that top result is changes in lipoprotein particle subclasses, standard lipids and apolipoproteins after supplementation with N3 or N6 PUFAs in abdominal obesity. They seven weeks randomized crossover three grams of EPA plus DHA or 15 grams of linoleic acid. 
for women, four grams of EPA, DHA, or 20 grams of linoleic acid in males. And looks like total LDLs. Uh, actually, the abstract isn't super clear. I'm going to have to pull up the paper. Um, Here. Oh my god, this is... Presented very difficultly. Um, All right, hold on a second. I gotta figure out how they're presenting this data. All right, so people who got people who got fish oil, safflower oil, or AB. So safflower oil is B, fish oil is A. All right, so. All right, so total LDLs went Uh, it doesn't look like they did anything. Um, all right, this this the first paper I'm looking at is kind of claiming they did something, but it doesn't look like they did anything. Um, second paper claims omega three improves ApoB one hundred turnover. Um, no, I you know I think this is this this would be better like either submit it for the for. A, uh, prepared answer in the contest or come with some papers to look at. But my, I mean, I, I, a, I can't imagine how supplementation with a few grams of any oil causes much change in lipoproteins and B, it just doesn't look like there's any consistent trend from the papers that pop up. So I, I seriously doubt there's anything to that, but that's, I'd have to look at it in way more detail to have a, a better answer. That's that's good. Thanks, Chris. I'll um I'll consider sharing the links to any studies I can find from 
what I was looking at. And also, depending on what that looks like on closer inspection, I'll submit it as a question in one of the upcoming AMAs. I um, asked this question in the QA and you can disregard it. I wasn't sure if I'd have to draw it before you got to me with my hand raised. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate Thank it. you. All right. We're going now to the Q&A box. Um, Jeff Husby has the first question. Jeff says, I was reviewing your video, Why Does Iron Overload Cause Diabetes? When I noticed on the graph at 9 minutes that these diabetics undergoing bloodletting had lower transparent saturation than I do, a non-diabetic, and yet they have much higher ferritin. That would mean my free iron is higher than theirs. My question is, why wouldn't my ferritin be just as high or higher than theirs, seeing that my transparent saturation and free iron are higher? Um, you're going to have to be way more specific for that question to make any sense. So iron saturation, transparent saturation should be between 30 and 40% than everyone. Um, but I guess you're sort of asking why would someone's transparent saturation be higher if their ferritin is not as high? And the answer to that is that normally I, normally your transparent saturation, as it moves from 30 to 40%, it kicks in uh, a decrease in iron absorption from the intestines and an increase in iron storage and ferritin. And if you have a disruption in that communication, because, for example, um, you have hemochromatosis genes, then you'll have higher transparent saturation and lower ferritin. However, ferritin is also influenced by oxidative stress and inflammation. So it might just be that the other people have greater oxidative stress and inflammation, which is what you'd expect from diabetics. So I, I think your general comparing yourself to the diabetics in that study is not a valid comparison to really understand what's going on in you. Um, but those would be the reasons. I mean, either, either you have hemochromatosis dynamics going on or they have oxidative stress and inflammation. They're diabetics, so we know they have oxidative stress and inflammation, and that's the most simple answer to your question. All right. Thanks, Jeff, for your question. Anonymous says, in testing nutritional status, you mentioned that either riboflavin deficiency or biotin deficiency can cause angular chelosis and itchy skin. How would I know if my angular chelosis, itchy eyes, and general itchiness are a sign of riboflavin deficiency, biotin deficiency, or something else? I already take 10 milligrams of riboflavin and 300 milligrams of biotin. Should I rule out riboflavin deficiency and biotin deficiency, or is it still possible to be deficient when supplementing at those levels? The answer is you have to use a functional marker. Um, so for riboflavin, the best functional marker is erythrocyte glutathione reductase activity. The only company that I know that does that in the United States is HDRI. I believe there's a link in the cheat sheet. For biotin, you want to run an organic acids panel that has 3-hydroxy isovalerate or beta-hydroxy isovalerate. The ion panel has that. I believe it's been discontinued. Um, and so hopefully their Nutrivalor Metabolomics Plus have it. Uh, but that's what you would want to do. You would want to look at the functional markers. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Next question is from Victor Bullis. Victor says, hey, Chris, I read through your vitamin D, K, and A page on, your, on PubMed and your Cliff Notes 101. Can you please explain why vitamin A and E is required alongside the other two? I couldn't find a source for a reason for that. Is, is it theoretically safe to supplement 5,000 IU vitamin D in 
180 micrograms of K2 and MK7 without the other two. If not, please explain. Thank you. My vitamin D level was 68 nanograms last time I tested, worried I've been damaging my body. Well, I mean, first of all, I'll say that anything you read about the interactions of, of vitamin D and K2 comes from what I did in the Weston A. Price Journal over the course of 2006 and 2007. So that the the mechanism of that was mainly that um, Kate Reem Blue popularized that in her book, The um, Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox, and then others uh, perpetuated it. But there were some opponents, you know, as, as it originally was formulated by me, this was an interaction between vitamins A, D, and K, where vitamins A and D synergistically regulate the production of vitamin K-dependent proteins, and vitamin K2 is the form of vitamin K that activates them. And that, you know, that was that was outlined in a series of articles uh, in westonaprice.org. One, the original one on whether vitamin A causes osteoporosis, the next from seafood to sunshine um, on vitamin D, and then um, what was called the uh, the Activator X article in 2007 was um, on the trail of the elusive X factor, it was called. And um, I believe that kind of got filtered out through the, the nutrition nutriverse where some people like Mercola were a little bit not as on board with vitamin A. The John Cannell from the Vitamin D Council was kind of the 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 top proponent of taking out vitamin A from the picture from what I had done. And by the time it filtered out, it, it, a lot of people received this as an interaction between vitamin D and K2. I think that's insane, um, completely nuts. <laughs> uh, and the reason is that take any vitamin K-dependent protein that's influenced by vitamin D, it's synergistically regulated by vitamin A. And in fact, if you go to that hypothesis paper I wrote, um, Tufts University had directly stolen that hypothesis from me and published a paper verifying it and not giving me any credit. I know they directly stole it from me for various reasons I won't go into here, but um, you know, but the the point is if you look at the Tufts paper, what I what I hypothesized is correct, which is that vitamin D dysregulates vitamin K-dependent proteins and causes more inactive proteins when it's not paired up with vitamin A. So this is a very specific vitamin A, D, K interaction. And leaving out the vitamin A is is totally missing the boat on it. Um, And yeah, I think a lot of people are doing harm by doing that. Now, I'm not going to say you've done harm. I don't know. We would have to look at things going on in you. If you don't have any symptoms and we don't have any lab data demonstrating harm, I'm not going to assume you've been harmed. But that's the reason for pairing with vitamin A. The main reason for pairing with vitamin E is that all the fat-soluble vitamins deplete each other. And that's because the body expects them to come together. And so it's adapted its, its catabolism machinery to use any of them as an index that there's too much fat-soluble nutrient and we need to start breaking some down. So if you megadose any of those and you don't have vitamin E alongside it, you're going to deplete your vitamin E. But that's true of any of the others. 
Um, so that's the answer to that. Thank you for your question, Victor. RB says, could you elaborate on the different effects on the body fat that sunflower lecithin liquid has compared to phosphatidylcholine liquid derived from sunflower lecithin? I was okay taking phosphatidylcholine supplements, but I switched to taking sunflower lecithin recently at every meal. But then I started to develop red bumps around my belly button area and skin itchiness other places on my stomach, abdomen. I was trying to take this for the purpose of helping with potential cholestasis that one doctor said they thought I had. They said this type of reaction signifies an issue with phase three liver detoxification. If that's true, what would I need to improve phase three liver detoxification? Phase three liver detoxification is is um, transporting stuff into the bile. I'm not sure what would improve that. I don't know what regulates the bile transporters in the liver off the top of my head. Um, but you know, bile, I'm sure it does. So, uh, robust thyroid health and um, taurine, glycine would be the main. Those would be the main things to look at with with bile production. Maybe bitters, herb like urban moonshine bitter tincture to stimulate bile flow. That might help. As to what is the difference between phosphatidylcholine versus sunflower lecithin, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know. I mean, sunflower lecithin is going to have a broader mix of other phospholipids, but I don't know like what uh, what off the uh, top of my head would be different such that it might cause that problem. But also phosphatidylcholine supplements, I would look at see what, whether the dose is equated properly because... Um, I think it would, you know, like, are you, were you taking a tablespoon worth of phosphatidylcholine supplements? And were you taking a tablespoon worth of sunflower lecithin? I'd, I'd be, I'd want to see the dose to make sure that it was equivalent. Um, but sorry, I can't be of more help. Hope that offers some help. All right, B, thank you for your question. Next question comes from Emma Canham, or Emma Canham. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Emma says, Hi, Chris. Thanks for hosting this. I feel much better in terms of mood and energy eating dairy, but it causes lung congestion, especially in allergy season and if I have a cold. Is there anything that would reduce or eliminate the congestion when having dairy? I realize I could take bone powder for calcium, which is part of what it seems I'm missing when not having dairy. But the dairy seems to fulfill needs for other nutrients, so I feel it would be much better if I could just have dairy. Um, well, my first question would be whether you're having raw dairy, because if you're not, you might want to switch to raw dairy. Second question would be whether you're having A2 dairy. If you're not, you might want to switch to A2 dairy. Uh, if you can't find A2 dairy, you might want to try switching to goat or sheep dairy and see if that solves it. Um, I mean, I think that other than that, you might want to look at general things that protect against allergies. Vitamin A is very protective against allergies. 
Uh, you might want to look at search my Substack for allergies, and you can find the post that I did about what I was doing for allergies. So there's, um, you know, methylation support. Uh, spirulina has some data behind it. Tinafolia. Tinas. Tinas. Forgot it. Let me let me pull up that post real quick. So. Just going to the main Substack, going to the search bar, typing in allergies. And it pulls up um, third results is what I'm doing for allergies. So I had three grams of spirulina a day, two capsules of Tinofend, which has Tinospora cordifolia, hyperlocal honey, 250 milligrams of quercetin phytosome. And then I go also go into some vitamin and mineral stuff, but basically anything that supports methylation, anything that supports antioxidant defense, molybdenum to make sure that you're, you don't have sulfite degrading the mast cells. Vitamin A reduces mast cell burden. You know, anything along those lines uh, would help. So I don't know anything like a specific counter to the dairy effect, but make sure it's raw A2. If you can't get A2, that it's goat or sheep. And any of those allergy-related things might help. Thank you, Emma, for your question. Alicia C. says, I'm late with PC problems. No problem. I'm not sure what this means yet. No problem if I'm too late. But if there's time, I have a question about... Oh, late to the AMA. Well, uh, there were a lot of questions from the same person and, uh, or from Anonymous. So even though you put your question in last, I have to get to all the, the first questions of individual people first. So um, I have a question about triglycerides and fatty acid and fatty liver. My friend's husband started eating daily eggs and is thus getting more choline than he's ever gotten in his life. His triglycerides went from 200 to 300 to 500, which has freaked his doctor out. She has him on high-dose prescription fish oil to lower them because two years ago, he had pancreatitis as a reaction to biologic drug. However, he also has imaging showing fatty liver and his genetic choline calculator results predict a very high need for dietary choline. All this has made it has me wondering if his liver is pumping out triglycerides because it finally can. Does taking fish oil count counterproductive in the context of his body trying to export hepatic fat? That's a great question. I mean, my first instinct is that might be why his triglycerides have gone high, but I would still be concerned that he's uh, just not tolerant to fat or something like that. Um, you know, if I would look at whether the eggs are a significant source of fat in his diet, because if they are, then it might be that he just gets high triglycerides in response to fat, which is not normal, but is concerning. But if it's a small proportion of the fat in his diet, it probably can't be the driver of a tripling almost of his of his triglyceride level. Um, so that would make triglyceride export more more plausible. But it, you know, it, it might, I'd still be concerned that his triglyceride uptake is is being hurt. Um, so I would keep an eye on it, I guess is the big thing. Uh, fish oil is going to interfere with carbohydrate stimulation of triglyceride synthesis. Uh, probably neither here nor there. It would be better if he wasn't on it just to not 
interfere with the signal. So I think that I think he should repeat the ultrasound after 12 weeks max to see if the fatty liver is going down. If the fatty liver is going up, then get him off the eggs and do something else. Use TMG to fulfill the choline requirement. But if his fatty liver is going down when his triglycerides are going up, that would that would very strongly support that interpretation of yours. Uh, I I think you know definitely it's definitely of a concern, but the I think the doctor maybe is panicking a little bit bit too fast. You don't want to mess with the signals that you're getting. It's not going to hurt him for you know twelve weeks to have his triglyceride go up like that, but. But you you definitely want to know as fast as you can whether your interpretation is correct because if it's not, then then you definitely want to fix that three to five hundred triglycerides. But I think putting them on hydrous fish oil is kind of silly. Like if the eggs are causing a problem, get rid of the eggs. But if the eggs are causing resolution of a problem, keep them there and resolve the problem. I think the doctor is trying to treat numbers in a way that's not going to wreck the whole thing, but it, it just clouds the data a little bit. So anyway, my strongest thought on this is follow up this very, give it enough time to have some effect, but follow up otherwise very rapidly to to figure out what the real effect is. Thanks, Alicia, for your question. All right, I have a hard stop at 11.45. I'm going to try to go through these questions. Um, I'm going to try to go through them all. Uh, I'm going to have to go through them fairly rapidly. Please don't ask any more questions because otherwise there's no way we're going to get out by my get by my, my hard stop. So, All right, Jeff Husby says, I'm wondering why homocysteine would ever be high in anyone. You'd think the body would take the opportunity to make more glutathione, assuming most people in the modern world are always in need of more glutathione. Maybe it's a lack of cofactors to send homocysteine to the transulfuration pathway, but that only seems like a partial explanation. Uh, I mean, your, your question kind of doesn't allow for enough dysfunction. People are dysfunctional all the time. So something something goes wrong when things are wrong, you know? Um, but, uh, but generally speaking, you can infer why people's homocysteine is high based on what lowers it. So a lot of people are deficient in folate and B12. That's why homocysteine is high in the people where homocysteine goes down if they're deficient in folate and B12. Other people are deficient in B6. That's why some people's homocysteine goes down if they're deficient in B6. They can't make glutathione out of it if they're deficient B6 because they can't convert homocysteine to cysteine, which is necessary. Um, let me just bring up my notes on some of the other en- enzymes involved. So the CBS enzyme itself doesn't just require vitamin B6. It also requires heme iron. So if someone's deficient in iron, they're not going to be able to convert homocysteine to cystheanine. It is activated by SAMe. If someone's deficient in magnesium or ATP, they're not going to activate methionine to SAMe and they're not going to have SAMe to activate CBS. So they're not going to be able to activate the CBS pathway. Um, after that, you need to convert cystathionine to, to cysteine and that requires 
B6 as a cofactor. Diabetes and methylglyoxal decrease it. Age increases it. So that cystathionine gamma ligase enzyme is uh, is going to require is going to require B6 and prevention of diabetes. You know, so these are all reasons why someone could not be able to make glutathione from homocysteine and cause the backup of homocysteine. But also, in the in the fasting state, you need more methyl groups. So you're not trying to break it down. You're trying to scavenge homocysteine from methyl groups. So you're purposefully shutting off the breakdown of homocysteine so you can recycle the methionine. But if you don't have folium B12, you don't have enough choline or betaine, then you're not going to be able to convert homocysteine to methionine. So that those are two two different reasons why homocysteine could be high. The recycling primarily is relevant in the fasting state. The breakdown to glutathione is mainly relevant in the fed state. Thank you, Jeff, for your question. Anonymous says, I was sweating more than usual this weekend and last week due to spending time outside during the recent heat wave. In the last two days, I've developed a slight involuntary eye twitch that comes and goes. I think it's probably an electrolyte imbalance of either sodium, calcium, magnesium, or potassium, which is it most likely from your perspective? Which should I supplement to get rid of it? Should I keep certain ratios in mind of these electrolytes relative to each other? Um... Honestly, I mean, you first have to make a decision whether you care that much about which one it is. So if you really, if you really want the twitching to go away as fast as possible, you should supplement with all of them. But if you really want to know which one's doing what, you should supplement with each of them individually. As to which one's more likely, I mean, usually you use, lose the most sodium in, in sweat compared to the others if you're not sweating a lot, although you you adapt to that if you're an athlete, you sweat a lot. Um, but you do lose the others in sweat. So it really depends on what you are more borderline in rather than what you lose most in sweat. So I think it's it's not very helpful for me to try to speculate about which one is most likely. So you can try some salted water. You can try 400 milligrams of potassium. Three or four hundred milligrams of calcium, three or four hundred milligrams of magnesium. See which of those helps most. Increase the dose if you need to. But if you just want it to go away, just you know, eat a meal, supplement with all of those, salt it very well, etc. All right, thank you, anonymous, for your question. RB says, "Thank you for hosting these great AMAs, Chris. You're welcome." Thank you, RB. In your COVID guide, you said general research of my own suggesting the needs for vitamins A and D are relatively similar in IU value. When I look at this range, I see studies that show cod liver oil, which has a ratio of 10 to 1 A to D, but I also see other studies that show the opposite ratio of 1 to 10 AD. Can you expand on your thoughts that get the 1 to 1 ratio and have you recommended it? And do you think the values among individ- values varies among individuals? How do you factor in sunlight exposure as a source of vitamin D? Um, so if you look at just the uh, total amount of vitamin D estimated to bring your value into the ranges thought to be good, where 30 nanograms per milliliter is is the threshold that sort of maximal needed for most physiological processes, and where 50 nanograms per milliliter might you know might be suggested as a reasonable target for COVID prevention, but is 
otherwise not that well supported by data. You're basically looking at three 5,000 IU of vitamin D. And if you look at, um, you know, maybe a little more in some people, and if you look at the measures used to estimate the vitamin A requirement in the DRI report, I basically, they were looking basically at, at signs that the liver metabolism of vitamin A had been normalized because there are things that the, that the liver does to handle vitamin A when you run low where vitamin A gets up to a saturating point and the liver stops doing those things. And more recent research than than had been done since the DRI suggested that the point of vitamin A intake on average that normalized that at 5,000 IU. So that's quite close to to sort of the default for vitamin, vitamin D. The default vitamin A intake in the RDA is, is 3,000 IU for males, close to it. So both of these are suggesting around three to five thousand AU as a baseline, and so, you know, it's not that you need a one-to-one ratio. It's just that the IU value of each of these is relatively similar in the range that is reasonably postulated as the basal requirement, um, and so therefore, when trying to pump them up, I think it makes sense to keep them around one-to-one. Not that they have to be exactly one-to-one, but just that the values you need are relatively similar. And so an easy way to make sure they stay in balance is to keep them relatively similar, absent having a more specific reason to increase something else. So in the case of someone who has a genetic predisposition to need more vitamin A and has signs of vitamin A deficiency at relatively high intakes and relatively high blood levels, then you know, then you need to go higher on the vitamin A because you have a demonstrated need for it. So the one-to-one isn't just something to write in stone. It's it's the default in the absence of a reason to go higher in one versus the other. If you have a demonstrated need for a higher of one versus the other, you go higher in that one versus the other. Thank you, RB, for your question. One second, guys. Anonymous says, what's the optimal level of secretory IGAs? The lab given range is 510 to 2010 is very wide. Um, I don't know. So I don't, I don't have a reason to um, disagree with the lab range, although I suspect that higher is better. But I don't have a specific level to recommend. Thanks, Anonymous, for your question. Victor Vula says, also, second question along with my first. Would MK7 be enough alone to take with D? Or do I need other forms? I'm a bit worried about this because apparently a recent study came out saying MK7 does not help with calcification. Um, so this... Uh, I mean, I would, I would never listen to a news article about a study without looking at the study. Um, Taking a quick look at this paper. This paper doesn't um, 
looks like an observational study. I don't know if I clicked the wrong. I don't know. Next time, next time, if you want me to look at a study, please post a study and not and not the news article. I'll just say that um, I I believe that MK4 is the most important for protecting against um, heart against calcification in the blood vessels. I've maintained that for the last uh, fifteen years, and. Uh, go to chrismasterjohnphc.com slash K2 for the ultimate vitamin K2 resource. I discuss all about that. You should have a mix of MK7 and MK4. Thank you, Victor, for your question. Jeff Husby says, I noticed many times that drinking water triggers hunger in me. Before I consciously thought about it, I guess I just assumed it was wash the sugar out of the blood. But after thinking about it, I'm sure rather that it's diluting the concentration of glucose in the blood and therefore triggering hunger. But the glucose is still there, right? So maybe drinking water creates a false sense of hunger because the glucose is still there and has to be dealt with by insulin and before drinking water. No, I don't think drinking water is going to increase your blood volume. That's implausible because you need, I mean, unless you were dehydrated, right? So, I mean, it's, it's possible that you were dehydrated um, and that was preventing you from being hungry. So, you're probably hungry in the first place. I do think that, um, I do think that becoming hypoglycemic will cause you to pee because then you can remove water from the blood, decrease blood volume and maintain glucose concentration normal. So if you drink water and rehydrate, then that's that's just that's just basically saying that you should have been hungry in the first place. Uh, but otherwise, I don't I don't think that drinking water above your nor if you're hydrated properly, drinking more water is not going to increase your blood volume. I hope that helps answer your question, Jeff. Thank you. Anonymous says, I'm taking supplemental calcium. What's the ratio of calcium to each one of the following that would be recommended to ensure I stay in balance? Magnesium, vitamin D, K2. I do not recommend keeping them in any ratio. And um, you should go to the Vitamins and Minerals 101 course in the under courses and just uh, get the targets for each of those from there rather than ratios. Anonymous says, good morning. Appreciate your answering all of our questions. Chris, can I safely take zinc L-carnosine long-term? Um, I don't know of any reason you can't, but as with any zinc supplementation, I would keep an eye on your copper level if you're doing that without without balancing it. And your, you know, make sure your diet's rich in trace minerals in general. But I don't I, I don't I haven't looked at long-term supplementation studies of it. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, how did you use come to the one-year mark for maintaining high zinc supplementation for the COVID guide? I took that from the one-year dosing study where the dosing came from. So uh, if you look at my, if you search my site for um, what's the best dose of zinc for COVID prevention, you'll see that's, the, I mean, you'll see it cited in the COVID guide, but you'll also see it discussed in more detail there.
Sweet spot for zinc in the 100 to 120 microgram per deciliter range is based on depletion repletion studies and uh, normal ranges in people that don't have any symptoms. And that's gone into great detail in my long form podcast on zinc. And you can get that at um, chrismasterjohnphd.com slash marker. Then go to the list of nutritional podcasts where the zinc one goes into great detail about that. Thanks, Anonymous, for your question. Uh, we have, uh, I got a hard stop in nine minutes, so I'm going to try to really buzz through these. Anonymous says, in your COVID guide, you suggested limiting your, in your best add-on section that Corsican fight at his own 250 milligrams with a meal twice a day taken every day for up to three months. Why only three months? Is it safe for someone to take Corsican long-term? I'm taking it as a mast cell stabilizer too. Um, a, that was taken from the study that had shown benefit from it. Uh, B, I'm very skeptical of you. Quercetin phytosome 20-fold increases the absorption of quercetin compared to regular supplements. And there are negative effects on cellular structure shown with really high-dose quercetin concentration. And so I'm, I'm quite skeptical about long-term using something that is formulated to radically increase absorption over what you could get from food. Uh, but I, you know, I don't, there's no studies demonstrating harm in people, but there's reasons to be concerned about it. Anonymous says, I always learned so much from these Q&A sessions, so thank you for having them. In your ultimate K2 guide, you recommend including supplement, supplemental MK4 when supplementing K2. Mercola says, MK4 has a short biological half-life, making it a poor candidate as a dietary supplement. However, MK4 from food is important for good health as it plays a role in gene expression. For example, research has found it may lower your risk of liver cancer. What's your response to the idea that MK4's short biological half-life makes it a poor candidate for a dietary supplement? There's no evidence whatsoever it has a short biological half-life. It has a short plasma half-life because it's taken into cells more easily. So I... Um, you know, if you go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash K2 and click open the more detailed explanations of which form should you take, I go into great detail on that. Uh, but the gist of it is that there are a lot of reasons to think you need MK4 and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that the getting it from food is important in low microgram doses and yet it rapidly disappears from the body meaning you need many milligrams to do anything. Um, there's no evidence it rapidly disappears from the body. In fact, there's evidence flatly against it because if you take any animal, the tissues are full of MK4 specifically. So it clearly lasts a long time in cells and people that say that are conflating plasma half-lives with whole body half-lives. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, what advice might you offer someone who sometimes doesn't have any bowel movements in a day then other times as too many, despite eating a relatively consistent diet. This is somewhat reflective of IBS that alternates between constipation and softer stools. I don't know. There's some herbs that are promoted for regularity, but I don't know anything about them. You might want to look for like get regular teas. Um, I would say more fiber might help. Um, but other than that, I don't, I'm not, I'm not the best person to ask gut questions for, so I don't have anything super good for that. Thanks, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, what are nutritional dietary causes of nightmares? Growing up through middle school, high school, and college, I had nightmares almost every night, and so I thought it was normal. But after emotional stress following grad school and a breakup, I started taking magnesium and adaptogenic herbs, and suddenly my nightmares were reduced substantially in frequency and severity. Many years later, since I started supplementing, I have nightmares less frequently. 
but they still recur maybe a few times a month and sometimes get worse before monthly my monthly cycle starts. What are the nutritional dietary causes of nightmares that I could, should consider now? I don't know anything about the nutritional causes of nightmares. Um, that magnesium helps, makes me think that maybe NMDA receptors being activated uh, might be involved, which are a subtype of glutamate receptor that are blocked by magnesium. Adaptogenic herbs makes me think maybe your nighttime cortisol level is relevant. Uh, before, before my monthly cycle starts, I guess that means at like at the end of your period or after it. Um, I don't know if if it's not it's not an estrogen spike if it's not also happening after on like day sixteen ish after ovulation. Um. But I don't know. I you know I I don't know that much about what causes nightmares. So sorry to not offer better thoughts. But thank you, anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says I noticed some unusual high pathogenic bacteria levels on a stool test enterohemorrhagic E. coli after consuming on a daily basis freeze-dried ancestral beef supplements, liver, kidney, heart, pancreas, colostrum for several months. And during that time, I hadn't been eating. A- any restaurant food or undercooked meat during this time. I was also taking herbal antimicrobials multiple times a day to adjust suspected SIBO. So I feel if the pathogenic bacteria was caused by food, I'd have killed it with the herbal antimicrobials unless I was getting a continuous source of it daily. Do you think that it's possible that pathogenic bacteria came from the freeze-dried beef supplements? Given that freeze-drying doesn't necessarily kill all the bacteria, do you believe that freeze-drying animal products are safe for people to take, especially people who have existing gut issues? I don't know. I mean, from your story, it sounds like you were addressing suspected SIBO and I think you're reading too much into the power of the herbal antimicrobials. I mean, maybe your E. coli is just related to the SIBO is is what I think. Um, but I don't know. I've never seen them tested for E. coli. Uh, so I have no idea if that's true, but I don't worry about it. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. I mean, I, I take them. So, uh, All right. I'm not going to get to all of these questions in three minutes. Uh, looks like Liz Ehrlich hasn't been answered yet. So I'll go to her question. Do you have recommendations for food sensitivity testing? I'm against food sensitivity testing outside of elimination diets and such. I have some food allergies, but also seem to be sensitive to foods that don't agree with my blood type. According to my blood type theory, not a proponent of that. By the way, the questions about water making a person feel hungry. I have that, but it is better. If I add a bit of lemon juice, it's better. Also slightly nauseous with the water, unless I'm really thirsty, I've never had an answer to this. Uh, maybe the potassium or organic acids, the lemon juice are bringing water into your cells more effectively so that it's not, um, so that it's not diluting the blood. That might make sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm against food sensitivity testing. You, you can get it. But I, I'm against using it for any conclusions, just for brainstorming. You know, if you need, you can use it as in a hypothesis-driven way, start removing those foods and see if it helps. But I don't, I'm not sure it's that much of an advance over just doing an elimination diet and adding things in. Um, so I just, I just don't see the value in it. Thank you, Liz, for your question. 
Anonymous says, what are the nutritional causes of restless leg syndrome? Look at iron first, magnesium second, calcium and parathyroid hormone third. Thanks, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, do you think your book will be ready before the end of this year? I'm eager to read it. I'm very much hoping that, but I can't guarantee it. And I think it's definitely plausible that I finish writing it by the end of the year. I think it's possible that I get it out by the end of the year, but I... I'm going to need more time to be able to estimate that. But I thank you for your enthusiasm. I appreciate it. All right, last question. Anonymous says, I watched your interview with Stephanie Seneff and was wondering if you buy into the idea of drinking deuterium-depleted water and eating deuterium-depleted foods and if you think evidence is there for reducing COVID severity. I think it's a very interesting idea. Uh, the evidence, you know, it, I, I mean, it's a hypothesis, right? I, I don't think there's any direct evidence of it. The amount of money required to buy it or the amount of time required to make it is a roadblock for me. And so I'm not currently doing the low deuterium thing. You know, but if I might be much more highly motivated if I had a health problem I was trying to solve that I thought was very relevant to it. But I think it's there. I just I just don't have the bandwidth to deal with it right now. All right, that's all I can do. I have a hard stop. I'm sorry I didn't get to all the questions. Please bring these questions. Um, either as comments on on posts that come out that maybe I can get a short answer to or bring them to resubmit next month. I'll probably early, probably early um, this coming week, I will have the recording and transcript of this out, as well as the registration for next month's AMA and the and the uh, question submission contest. So you can bring the questions there. And then next time, hopefully I can do a more open-ended one where I can get through uh, any questions that remain at the end. So... Um, yeah, please bring your questions next next time. Sorry, I didn't get to all of them. And I hope you guys found this useful. Thank you so much for attending. And I will see you all next time. Take care, guys.